This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Many communities celebrate Pride Month in June, and today we take you to Hilo, where HPR reporter Ku'ube Hirishi recently took in a drag show. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so how was it? <laughs> it was fabulous. Um, a lot of comedy, but also some acrobatic talent in Hilo, the Hawaii Island LGBTQ plus community uh, says the past uh, several years have sort of been challenging on the island, even in this year's a pride parade in Hilo organizers reported physical altercations in the crowd. And I uh, Phil Russell, president of the Hawaii Island LGBTQ plus pride, says proposals across the country to ban drag shows or or censor performances ultimately restricts LGBTQ plus expression and that uh, standing in solidarity with the community has been the theme this year. This is our 11th anniversary and our theme is a fabulous, fierce future. Um, and it's mostly centered on uh, drag queens and trans kids because that's who's under attack right now. Um, all this legislation going out, even in Hawaii, um, some people bringing forward legislation um, attacking trans kids and drag queens. We don't know why. They think it's our, the chink in our armor and they're gonna like try and get in that way, but we all stand together under this fabulous rainbow. Uh, The ACLU is currently tracking about 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in across the country, many of which uh, would ban or censor performances like drag shows. I know here in Hawaii recently we had that story time um, celebration for Keiki where there was some protest over drag queens doing the story time for Keiki. Um, but uh, no legislation came out of that. There was an instance on the Big Island at at least last year, two instances, uh, one in Honoka'a and uh, one in Kona, where uh, there was a fundraiser coming about that would have a drag show in place, and then the organizers would get pushback from some in the community. Um, One in particular, I got a chance to, to head backstage to meet one of the drag queens in this year's a show, uh, Cody Pease, whose drag persona is Tora Hamstring, like the injury. Uh, Pease, who is from Kona, shared a story of uh, some of the challenges they encountered in trying to put on a fundraiser in Kona. I remember a couple years ago, I was trying to do a charity show that got, and I ended up on the news because they were going to protest it, and then I got threats and violence. It was a fundraiser for the charity Humanity Holly that I work with in Kona. I work with them all the time, and I had to shut it down because I was worried. I was like, for the safety of the girls that I'm hiring, for the safety of the kids and the people, I was like, I'm not going to have anything happen. But due to that, it got on the news, and I mean, I had queens from Kauai, Maui, Oahu. Everyone showed up, and they're like, if we got to get on a plane and come over there, like, we will be there. (laughs) <laughs> Tora Hamstring wasn't the only drag queen to come from afar for this celebration. Honolulu drag queen Hazel Nuts flew in to perform. I love these names. <laughs> and uh, Hilo's hometown favorite, Moses Lee, whose drag persona is Palehua, like the song, was also there. And uh, Pease mentioned that particular um, fundraiser in Kona. I know about 18 legislators uh, afterwards end up ended up uh, sort of reaffirming their support for drag performers. And um, so there's 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 a I'd say a minority, but a vocal one um, when it comes to these these shows coming out on the Big Island. Uh, Russell, who we spoke to earlier, runs Pink It's a Show, which actually started as the Pride After Party drag show at Hilo Town Tavern, which is the one I uh, went to. And that actually turned into a monthly event and a pretty popular one at that last Saturday of every month. Um, but going back to Palehua, you know, this idea of uh, mahu culture, Hawaiian queer culture, uh, has that sort of respected uh, a respected place in, in Hawaiian culture in terms of gender fluidity. Uh, Lee says, watching earlier this year, uh, drag queen Sasha Kobe win uh, RuPaul's Drag Race season 15 and the first woman of color, first or trans, openly trans woman of color, but also first native Hawaiian from Waimanalo. That uh, for her was uh, inspiring. 
We all talk about representation, but it's so huge for the Mahu community to be able to look at her and be like, if she can do it, I can do it. If like this girl from the middle of the Pacific Ocean can do it, I can do it. In a world that is so homophobic, that is so transphobic, especially transphobic right now. It's so, um, it's beautiful to see. I'm so happy for her. And I'm excited to see where this takes her next. So Lee uh, says, you know, he chose that name Palehua because he didn't grow up around Hawaiian culture. And uh, he wanted a name that would push him to learn more about his ancestral roots. But when uh, he saw folks like Sasha Kobe and other Native Hawaiians up on the stage, that representation sort of inspires them to, to keep going, but also to have conversations about what it means to, to uh, represent uh, their community on stage. Right, and then uh, Sasha was featured recently, right, uh, at the Native Hawaiian... Yes, Mahu Magic uh, went about during uh, the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancements um, uh, convention, regional convention up in Las Vegas. Sasha Kobe was one of uh, many on stage there, and that, like you said, taking it to that larger stage of um, having Mahu culture, um, not just in communities like Hilo, but up on the big stage has really, um, I think, inspired folks to look more into what it really means and what sort of that cultural component may have been um, that goes back, you know, centuries here in Hawaii. Yeah, and I was fortunate to uh, take uh, in the Mahu show that Patrick McCuricani, the Kumuhula from San Francisco, and I remember doing the interview with him when he was putting the show together and he said, yeah, you put on a show Mahu in San Francisco, you know, you got to bring, bring it, it on, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, uh, and and it, it was uh, it, it was heartfelt. I mean, you know, it was nice to see that show come uh, to uh, Leeward, Oahu, you know, to All be right. able to appreciate, you know, just the nuances in the community. But you know, in San Francisco, like I said, Vegas. I, I the Vegas especially, and I think all drag queens kind of think of their drag performers think that when they're getting onto stage, they really wanna put on the best show that they can. I will say that day uh, that I went to the drag show in Hilo, uh, some of these drag queens had done the parade earlier that morning and also had an event the night before. And I think we're up probably 36 hours just to make sure that they were going to be there for the community and show up and and really kind of bring that solidarity um, or show that solidarity in the community there to make sure these shows go on without a hit uh, without a hitch but also um go on and and be fabulous actually yeah and you do have to acknowledge though that there is a segment in the community that does not um feel the same about inc- inclusivity right know? right and i think that's part that educational component is definitely a part of uh what the drag queens hope to uh bring in not only sort of um they get it. They get uh, the idea of inclusivity and, you know, talking to other folks who might not share their same mana'o. I think in the story, Palehua says it best. She has family members who don't understand it, don't get it, but they get her and they know her. And um, she <laughs> said, yeah, I don't get heterosexuals, but I love you. You do you and mm-hmm. will support you. And I think that's part of what makes it a little bit special there in Hilo. I know, but it, it is hard when you see folks that try and demonize one part of the community. It's kind of uh, hard to take. But yeah. thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been chatting with HPR's Kuvehi Hiraishi. You can read her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Hip-hop in France ranked second only to the U.S. in terms of popularity and influence. Since the 70s, rappers there have been breaking down problems in French society. From police brutality to racism's link to colonialism to social exclusion. Rappers in France raise their voices for justice and identity next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. 
Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. This is Terry Gross. Often when I'm interviewing people on Fresh Air, they give me a different way of looking at the world. We all thought our bike was cold in the rain, that our fish was lonely in a fishbowl, that a leaf would be afraid of heights when it fell. It's just the way we looked at things. Join us for new ways of looking at things on Fresh Air. Starting this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Where's the beef? Well, it appears to be on store shelves of Safeway. Our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have a story that has been simmering for some uh, in circles in the local cattle industry. Reporter Thomas Heaton joins us today. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sorry about the cliche. I couldn't help myself. Where's the beef? But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. I can only, yes. Yes, I, I but this. there has been a development uh, w- about our local uh, production and, and the slaughterhouse issue here. Yes, there has been. So um, the current owner of uh, the lion's share of slaughterhouse capacity here in Hawaii, Frank Vandersloot, has recently taken on a contract with Safeway to provide its locally uh, sourced grass-fed beef um, from his in-house brand Kama Aina Beef. Um, And this announcement came uh, earlier this month um, and essentially what's happening is they are replacing Paniolo Cattle Company, which is uh, the brand or the flagship brand of Parker Ranch. And while, of course, that's news in itself, um, it's kind of a symptom of a bigger issue and that's kind of been bubbling under the surface since um, Van der Sloot, a uh, billionaire from Idaho, uh, came and took over their slaughterhouse capacity, the two largest slaughterhouses in Hawaii, in 2019. Um, So there's a bigger kind of disagreement over how to treat beef and Hawaii's cattle um, going on that has kind of um, been rankling local ranches um, as Van der Sloot kind of takes control of the the beef industry. Yeah, and we've been hearing about this. I mean, when he... uh he came in, he blew into town, right? There was concern about, oh, a monopoly. They were afraid of, of what could happen. But those slaughterhouses kind of languished, right? They really needed some investment. Yeah, they certainly did. Um, I believe, uh, off the top of my head, I believe it was about $700,000 that um, the Oahu um, slaughterhouse owed to ranchers, and it was in desperate need of help. And then the Pauilo plant on Big Island, which processes uh, a majority of Hawaii's beef, um, that was the the owners at the time were really trying to get out because of, uh, well, personal reasons. Um, the plant was viable, but they needed a new owner to take over, and kind of Vandersloot came in, he paid off all those checks, he paid back the ranches, and everyone seemed to be quite happy. Um, but that simmered away, and then eventually it kind of, yeah, that monopolization fear came came to a head, actually, in 2021 with the introduction of a bill that would have limited um, Vandersloot's uh, ability to take control, I guess, of, of the, the greater beef market here in Hawaii. Um, one one kind of provision in that bill was that his in-house brands would um, only take 50, would take no more than 50% of the, the cattle coming through. Um, but of course that failed and now many see this kind of Safeway deal as confirming those fears um, that were laid out in that bill. Yeah, and the concern from Parker Ranch, and Parker Ranch has been the big boy in town, and now you have an outsider mm. coming in with deep pockets, uh, and they're they're concerned about their product, right, because they're saying Hawaii meat is premium meat, right, grass-fed, so it should command a bigger price. Yes, yeah, so so there kind of seems to be a, 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 a fundamental disagreement but between Parker and Vandersloot on how Hawaii's beef should be treated. Um, and that's kind of the issue that they've been wrangling with. Hawaii, um, sorry, Parker Ranch argues that, you know, it's a, uh, Hawaii's beef is akin to um, Norwegian salmon or wild-caught fish. The, the supply is not going to meet the demand, so it's going to fetch a higher price on the shelf. Whereas 
what's been reflected in the pricing for ranchers uh, at the Pauilo plant at least is that they've been getting a stagnant um, price you know uh, so one of the things that's been pointed out is if you look at the past five years the prices for ranchers um, that they have received per pound for their cattle has not kept up with national inflation let alone Hawaii inflation and also it's worth considering the price ranchers are commanding on the mainland for their for their beef considering years of drought so just for instance prices for commodity beef across the US have gone up 30% since 2017 and um, the prices that Hawaii's ranchers at least on Big Island have been getting have only gone up 5.9% so they're kind of pointing to that as do they really think that Hawaii beef isn't as valuable as um, as we think it is um, it's yeah, so the argument is kind of around there. There's a lot of disagreements going on, and I think that this is perhaps just one kind of symptom of that bigger, this kind of bigger, I guess, discussion or <laughs> um, round of polemics that's kind of going on at the moment. Okay, all right. Well, it is an interesting uh, issue that's playing out in our community, but thank you so much for your story, Thomas. Thank you. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's reality check. Read the full story, which talks about uh, other contracts with other uh, grocery stores and maybe other uh, slaughterhouses as well. But visit civilbeat.org to read the story. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Today we're playing leapfrog. Bufo marinus, or cane toad, is the largest species in its family. Adult cane toads weigh an average of four pounds and can grow to nine inches long. Native to Central and South America, about 150 cane toads were introduced to Oahu in 1932, and they have since flourished. And just like surfing, Hawaii played an integral part in their introduction to Australia in 1935. Uh, the down-under cane toads have gotten out of control, dominating the landscape, mainly due to a single female's ability to produce as many as 35,000 eggs per year. Their population has spun so far out of control. Many refer to it in biblical terms, calling them a plague of toads. Varying in color from olive brown to semi-yellow, this amphibian can camouflage itself with its surroundings to escape predators. However, this is not the only defense mechanism these toads possess. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us what the other defense measures the cane toad relies on? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable HPR toad bag. You are most likely succeed you have the looks and charms and girl you know that is all you need all the men around adore you that sexy support for the backyard quiz comes from nareet hawaii and its community giving initiative learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nareet hawaii Com. California is eyeing some ambitious composting goals, diverting 75% of its organic waste away from landfills in the next two years. Now, if you're a farmer or a gardener, holy cats, man, that looks yummy to you. I'm Kai Rosdahl. How all that yummy compost gets from your table to farmers. That's next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. This week, we've been spotlighting the unsung heroes working in different seed banks across the state to preserve the future of Hawaii's flora. Uh, nestled in the back of Manoa Valley is the Harold Lion Arboretum. It's been around for more than a century. The 200-acre public botanical gardens is home to the most unique collection of plants in the world. University of Hawaii professor Don Drake took over as interim director this month. His specialty is the interaction of plants and the life cycle of seeds. 
The conversation's Lillian Song sat down with Drake and other staffers who handle rare and endangered plants on a daily basis. One of the very convenient aspects of doing plant conservation is that you can store millions of seeds in freezers of modest size very inexpensively, whereas we have what, over 31 million seeds in our seed bank down here. Imagine trying to have a conservation facility where you had 31 million animals. It'd be impossible. One of the nice things about doing plant conservation is that for species whose seeds can be stored cold and dry, you can store a lot in a small space for very low costs. You know, many seeds can live for years, even under no special treatment by people. But when seeds are dried, they can be stored even longer. And when they're cold, they can be stored longer. And when they're cold and dry, those effects multiply. And so there's good evidence that these seeds that are in seed banks could be stored for certainly many of them for decades and possibly even for hundreds of years with little loss of viability. You have just started your tenure at the helm of the Lion. What is your vision for this organization here? Well, Lion Arboretum is a pretty special place. There's nothing else quite like it in Hawaii. And its mission has changed, of course, over the years, right, from when it first began as a place to test out trees to restore the watershed. And it has very important collections of plants living and growing out on the grounds. We have the largest diversity of palms of any botanical garden in the world except for one private botanical garden in Asia. So it really is a very important repository for plant diversity for a number of groups of species including palms and figs and gingers and heliconias and so forth. But over the past 30 years there's been an increasing focus on working with conservation of native plants in both the seed conservation laboratory where the seed bank is and in the micropropagation facility where they grow plants in tissue culture or they store them frozen at very low, low temperatures. And these facilities are actually good for those plants that don't do well in a seed bank because not every species has seeds that can be stored in a seed bank. What more should we be doing, can we be doing how can we help? Yes, well, that's a good question. I mean, certainly ensuring that there is no further habitat loss because so much has already been lost. We need to maintain the habitat that's still intact. And we need to reverse the process and regain or reclaim some areas that have become disturbed or have lost their native plants and animals. And this is called ecological restoration. And it's one of the things that we use seeds in the seed bank for to go back when it's possible to manage sites and restore native vegetation and then hopefully native animals will follow. Can you give me some examples of eco-restoration? Ecological restoration, well, Kaena Point back probably the 70s and 80s had vehicles driving around on the dunes and there wasn't much out there but beach naupaka and you know tire tracks on the dunes. And then they blocked access to vehicles and some of the vegetation started coming back on its own. But then there were efforts to remove some invasive plants, bring back some native plants and just sort of manage it to allow the system to recover. And then very quickly we started to get albatross coming back and wedge-tailed shearwaters and so forth. And that whole system now, if you go out beyond the barrier that they put up to exclude non-native mammals, is one of the nicest habitats on Oahu. So it's a really good example of a successful ecological restoration project. Just up here above us on Manoa Cliffs, there's a, a project where a small patch of forest that still had good remnants of native vegetation was chosen by a group of people who go up every weekend and they pull weeds, they plant out native plants and so forth. And if you look at before and after pictures of what they've done in the past 10, 15 years, it's really dramatic. So it doesn't happen overnight, but it's possible. And if people put the effort in, then their efforts will be rewarded. Yeah. Those are two really great examples. It just sort of showed that there's not only one way to do restoration, right? The state government might do it one way, the federal government might do it another, an NGO might do it a third way, but ordinary people 
can find ways to do meaningful restoration as well. So for you, as you handle these rare plants, what's going through your mind? That's a good question. There's something very positive about growing a plant and putting it in the environment, particularly something that you know will probably outlive you. You may not live to see that plant get to its full size and take its full role in the environment, but you know that it's going to be there and it's very satisfying to have that kind of opportunity. And research and emphasis on conservation biology at UH led to the development of the Hawaiian Rare Plant Program and the state's largest seed conservation laboratory. Student staffer Diane Hardy got her foot in the door as a volunteer last year and was hired full-time last month. She's on a mission to digitize the seed collection. So my job is imaging the seed collection. So we have thousands and thousands of different species banked here at the seed lab lot of threatened and endangered seeds. So I take pictures of all the seeds to put on our website. And the idea is that scientists around the world will be able to access those images and study the morphology of these seeds, compare them with other species around the world, and basically be able to, to learn more and study them up close without having to travel here because we're such a remote set of islands out here. Being in an arboretum, I love going on walks around like before, after work, looking at the beautiful wildlife that we're in, talking about the lab. I love like our growth chamber, seeing how, you know, the, the seedlings from the seeds that we're banking here are growing and what plants look like, because I mostly look at the seeds, so it's really cool getting to see the plants. And I also do viability, looking at the viability test, so um, checking for germination. I always get really excited when a seed germinates. And this seed back is housed in an unassuming two-story facility. Conservation manager Nate Kingsley takes us on a tour. So this room, the whole seed lab was just this room. How far you've come. <laughs> I don't, unfortunately, have a picture of what it looked like at the time. Started in 1995, so it's you know almost 30 years old. We have 27, 28 years of data for certain species that say that they can store in frozen temperatures no problem for 27 years and they're still viable. We have some that are shorter lived and they only last, well it can vary too, but they can last like one to five to maybe 10 years max. When we're testing these, we're constantly pushing that notion of our understanding of how long we can keep these in frozen storage. The ones that are shorter lived, the ones that we have a lot of data that says, okay, hey, after five years, they lose like 50% of their viability. We want to work with the collectors, which in this case is the state, to try to get these back out into the wild. So we'll germinate large portions of these seeds or we'll work with rare plant nurseries, send them back and let them sow a lot of these so that they don't die here in storage. You guys are holding more than 31 million seeds in your bank. There's even like... 10 species that are just no longer found in the wild, but only here in your collection. That's correct, yeah. Largest seed collection in the state and rare plant repository for the state also. So we get the seeds from all the other islands coming here, or at least a subset of those, and we bank them for long-term storage. Are you like a bank where I have an account with you, and if I collected my seeds, I put it into my safety deposit box, which is your freezers, your fridges, can I make a withdrawal? Is that how your seed bank works? Yes. Um, so for the most part, the partnership is with the state, the Department of Land and Natural Resources. So a lot of the germplasm that you see in front of you is property of the state. For the most part, we will always run a viability test as soon as the seeds come into our collection. That way we kind of have a bar at which to hold the standard of viability to as that seed remains in storage. And then we'll pull it out as we do our subsequent testing, depending on the data that we need and what we don't have and things like that. They will make withdrawal requests for these seeds. They'll ask, hey, can I, we're doing this reintroduction of species X at this site. Can I withdraw 500 seeds of this particular species? And we'll process those requests also. And so, yeah, we're essentially holding them until they can be used for reintroduction efforts. Wow. And let's say in the past four years since you've come on board, though, you've seen exponential growth in just how many partners are actually bringing their seeds to the Lion Arboretum Seed Bank? Yes, 
more collections and you know with the ability to really process more having that staff and having the equipment and the resources and hopefully new building uh, even more equipment and more resources we can really hold so much more work through so much more process more test more and then that that's also cyclical in terms of and i can show you this also when we go upstairs the growth chamber that we have that has just our living plants in it that are subsequent seedlings from germination tests that we will send out to rare plant nurseries across the state and so we're cranking out so much more because we're testing more because we have more people and we get more seeds. So there's kind of that feedback loop there. What you're looking at here is um, we're running all these tests on auger or paper media. Okay. So in this space, you know, we probably are running 80 viability tests at the same time. So you're saying viability, you're trying to germinate. All of these are up for germination trials. So tags are color-coded by island. Blue is Big Island species, yellow is Oahu species, and purple is Maui, Molokai, and Lanahi. This one's really cool. It was actually the first labeled endangered species here in Hawaii. It was last seen on Big Island in the early 1900s, I think like 1915, and then it wasn't seen again until 1979 or something like that. Visia menziesii. It's a legume, if I'm not mistaken, endemic to Big Island. So they had presumed it was extinct for over 50 years and then found another population again, and now we have the seeds of it for the first time in 2023. The seedlings from these germination tests, they're in here and then we're working with the state to get these back out into the wild. From here, they're going to go to those rare plant nurseries on each respective island that they come from. And once they're grown up to be pretty sizable, they'll go back out. Some unfortunately don't make it. Those ones that are hardy enough to make it into the end are the ones that are suited for planting out into the wild. So we last year, we got 980 some odd plants back out into the wild really feels like you're already thinking like five steps ahead. What do you need to keep your seeds safe, continue to test them for viability, continuing to do the research. So you guys are banking a lot of data. As you look ahead, what is your vision for the seed lab? Well, the digital presence was huge. You were upstairs with Diane. Her whole project is digitizing and imaging our whole collection. That's been great because we can create this like online digital resource of our collection that can be accessed worldwide. Online, we didn't see a lot of seed banks doing that. Seed resources, seed banks, or barrier that have seed collections, whatever it might be, not uploading these or at least not utilizing these new technologies to really capture these images. You know, if you take those seeds I showed you in the drying cabinet earlier, those tiny, tiny seeds, if I took that with my phone far away, it doesn't do you any good in terms of the identification of that seed. You know, if you put that under the microscope, there's a whole world on the surface of that seed. And so when we started imaging these to develop this digital database of seeds, it's one of the biggest ones now for tropical seed banking and really one of the best digital collections right now out there in terms of the website. We really want to expand on that. After I can get them all uploaded, I want to add seedling pictures. We work with these at such a small scale. They're, they're so tiny when we germinate them and we have them in our growth chamber. And some of these species that are, you know, maybe a millimeter or two or three big when they're with us grow up to be trees out in the wild. And so to have images of what the seed, there's a lot of pictures for some, I mean, some are rare, but for a lot of them, there are a lot of images of them in the wild or what they look like as adults, but there are no images of them as seedlings. And so we'd like to capture that. We'd also like to capture like cross sections of the seed to see what like the embryonic tissue of a lot of these look like. Also just continue to develop the website and really like have like all the statistics and data, having all the rare plant stats, like the fun stats, you know, on, on one website was, was, was cool to do too. And, and have a place where we can update this constantly and make sure that that website stays relevant and current. Um, and then also just expand the collection. I, I'm super excited about the renovation because it gives us the potential, the possibility to ex like double at minimum are the capacity at which we can hold these seeds. And so, you know, if we have 31 million now, you know, we can have 62 million after this renovation and stuff. And, and as the state works with us and prolifically collects, we can continue to expand the collection and stuff. And, and it's been super neat developing our understanding, myself, students, 
other people that are working in the lab, our understanding of Hawaiian seed storage. Since we have one of the most comprehensive databases, it's nice to, to be able to really contribute to seed banking. And as you've been working here, what has been the most exciting seed that you've ever worked on? Or what has really, I can tell you're very excited about all seeds, but is there a species for you where you find, perhaps because they are so rare, this plant really needs your help? I really think, I mean, it, I don't have one in particular, but I can give you a group. These Hawaiian lobeliads, the Campanulaceae, they're bellflowers, extremely beautiful. And a lot of them are super rare with very few populations left in the wild. And it's really, really cool to work with some of those. And some of them, the only place that they really exist, you know, in, in this case, in Exitu is here in the lab. And it's a scary thought, but it's also a neat thought to know that at least we keep them from completely going extinct and they can just retain that extinct in the wild classification rather than full-blown extinction. That was Nate Kingsley, manager of the Lion Arboretum Seed Conservation Lab. Uh, we also heard from uh, University of Hawaii student Diane Hardy and interim director Don Drake. And as we heard, expansion plans for their research uh, in the works of following major renovations of the facility, which is scheduled for later this year. And by the way, we will have pictures and a link to the digitized seed collection on the conversation page of our website later today. The Whole Hog Barbecue is the original style of American barbecue. It's a tradition deeply rooted in indigenous and black history. For much of barbecue's history, that work fell upon enslaved Africans and the later enslaved African Americans. We'll talk about barbecue's history and black America's complicated relationship with food and hospitality with pitmaster Ryan Mitchell. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. In the 1980s, the scientific consensus on growing old was grim. But with every study, it became clearer that older people were happier in their day-to-day -day lives on balance than younger people were. How some things in life get better as we age, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7. The Smithsonian Institute is increasing its focus on Native Hawaiian history and culture. The world's largest museum, education and research complex, recently hired Big Island native Helena Kapuni Reynolds as an associate curator at the National Museum of the American Indian. He grew up in Keokaha and has a master's degree in anthropology with the focus in museum and heritage studies. And it's the first time the Smithsonian will have a curator dedicated to a specific cultural group. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Caputi Reynolds recently to discuss how he will help shape the understanding of Hawaiian history and culture by the rest of the world. In this new position, I am really responsible for developing exhibitions that they can showcase in D.C. as well as in New York City because we have two museums that we manage. But it also entails building partnerships with communities, cultural centers, and museums here in Hawaii because what the National Museum of the American Indian wants to do more of is programming outside of D.C. to reach those communities that may not necessarily go to the East Coast, but they represent through their mandate, through their legislation. So just to give you a really quick summary of my duties, it's pretty much split between doing research and scholarship, so performing any kind of scholarly, technical, or applied research related to Native Hawaiian culture, arts, and history as assigned, I can also provide guidance and consultation to other organizations. Again, that collaboration part is really key. I'm also going to be working on exhibitions and public programs. So again, whether that will be in D.C. or Hawaii, still learning as I go. And my favorite part about this new position is that there's a really strong public service arm towards it. So I've been given a lot of leeway and support from the organization to be able to partner with organizations we work in the community around history and culture and hopefully broker some conversations here in Hawaii around what that might look like moving towards the future. 
And a little bit of collecting is underneath my hat as well, but we'll be having more conversation over the next few years about what that might look like for NMEI. How close is this to a dream job for you? How passionate are you about Hawaiian history and culture? It really was the dream job for me, especially because of this public service component. And I go back to that because a lot of my work and my passion for Hawaiian history stems from Ohana or my family. And I grew up in a household where my mother and my grandmother, you know, just everyday Hawaiian women were the genealogists, did a lot of work for family reunions, did a lot of work to raise their children and grandchildren, and really believed in the Hawaiian Renaissance, the Hawaiian language cultural revitalization movement, as well as the Hawaiian charter school movement. So it was really in that space of Kaukaha that I first developed that passion for Hawaiian history and developed it further within this really rich Hawaiian culture-based education system that I grew up in. As somebody who grew up in Kelkaha, a Hawaiian homeland community, in fact, the oldest Hawaiian homeland community on Hawaii Island, I grew up really aware of the tensions and political, kind of ongoing political questions that we have within the community, as well as just the high awareness with regards to the ways that county, state, and federal government have really failed Hawaiian homeland beneficiaries and how that continues to impact people on a really daily basis. Just as a really quick example, where I grew up in Kilkaha, my grandmother's house was located right along the fence line of the Hilo International Airport. And so the airport was always something that I grew up with, and many people in Kilkaha continue to have to deal with on a daily basis, as well as other kind of environmental concerns that we have, such as the raw sewage treatment plant that the county needs to repair and improve. You know, the issues around Hilo breakwater and water quality. So those are things that weren't separate from my experiences, but were really a part of how I came to become a curator and thinking about how can I do better for our community to get the news out about what happens in everyday Hawaiian community life that for some folks, you know, if you're not from those places, you might not even know about what's going on. We all know that there are misconceptions about Hawaiians and the Hawaiian culture out there. What are some of the biggest challenges Hawaiians face when trying to set the record straight? Is there anything that you've come across that you feel like, oh, this is something that through my work, I need to work on addressing? This is something that I I think I've thought about for a really long time. It comes from a place of growing up in community and then going into higher education and being in classes where I never really heard the stories of the people from my community. Even within Hawaiian cities and Hawaiian language spaces, there are certainly our strengths, but I think one of our our opportunities, I guess, is to really figure out how do we get Hawaiian curriculum within higher education and even in, you know, our charter schools or elementary schools and middle schools and and high schools, you know, how do we get that curriculum back to teaching the importance of community, of knowing how to listen and to ask questions of your kupuna and other elders in your community and developing a practice in which we're cultivating or cultivating Hawaiian practices within those spaces as opposed to kind of treating them as just one unit within your curriculum or one field trip that you take to a certain cultural place. And that requires systemic change that I think we're in the midst of now and we're still really trying to figure out how do we maximize the incredible scholarship that is coming out that is being produced by Native Hawaiians as well as non-Hawaiians regarding Hawaiian history and Hawaiian politics. But how do we ensure that, you know, all of this knowledge that is being generated is impacting those who are struggling the most within our communities? And for me, it, it always goes back to Kilkaha because I always, as much as I love my community and, and being able to grow up there, we do know, as with many other Hawaiian homeland communities, we have many social issues, poverty, drug use lack of wealth in general. And so these are things that limit our own opportunities to access education or even museum spaces. And so I always try to think about how can we be better at making sure that our efforts and our strategies and our goals are made in a way that can support those among us who need the most help, who need the most kako'o from their community. I imagine some of the work that you do is changing how people outside of Hawaii or outside of Hawaiian culture view Hawaiian culture. 
in the time that you've been on the job so far, what has the reception been like to those changes? I would say at the moment, I haven't done too much of that work. But what I can say is that since I was hired on with the Smithsonian, I've been able to provide a little bit more guidance internally within our museum around, for example, we do generate some social media content. We do programming around Hawaii because NMEI's mandate includes Native Hawaiians within it, which is another kind of project that I'm really excited to do more research on to really explain why Native Hawaiians are in the National Museum of the American Indian. Quite an interesting history there. Too long for a phone conversation. <laughs> but, you know, being able to be in this position and to work with other agencies has really been an opportunity for me to put people in contact with the people they need to be talking to. In the role that I have, I see myself not necessarily as an expert, but really a facilitator for really important conversations as well as hopefully preparing other folks who want to do work in Hawaii, what that looks like on the ground. Because it's not easy. It is not just going to be a vacation if you come to Hawaii. If you really want to engage with Hawaiian community, it means getting your hands dirty and in the mud and being there with people, doing community events, putting in the work. And so I'm hoping I can really provide that educational aspect, especially within the federal government, but also, you know, other federal agencies that we may work with. For example, um, I can't give away too many details at, at this moment, but I've been working with an agency on, you know, how do you how to prepare certain imagery around Native Hawaiians that is appropriate, right? That isn't just the typical kind of American idea of what Hawaii is, which is the luau and the grass elephant mm -hmm. shirts, like none of that. I've been able to really provide that guidance, and I think it'll probably be something that I'll continue doing over the next few years. And one of the things that is most surprising is when I talk to the kind of average American person, I think there's this assumption that because we have all this kind of knowledge around Hawaiian politics and history out there that is really familiar to us, most Americans still have no clue. <laughs> to say right. the least. And so there's really this opportunity for how do we, how do we really get that education out there to folks who will be visiting Hawaii in a way that gets people to recognize that it's not just a place, it's not just your paradise, that there are people dealing with everyday struggles on the ground, especially Native Hawaiian communities. Do you feel any pressure now that you're the guy that's in charge of crafting how our story is told through the museum and to a worldwide audience? Any pressure? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think any... I think anyone in a position of, of power really needs to recognize that one, it is a tough job, but two, you know, knowing where I'm from and really being grounded in really just my family's practices and things I've learned over the years in my own efforts to reconstruct a Hawaiian life that makes sense for me today has given me the confidence to really broker these difficult conversations. I think I come to this position really willing to listen to our community members to facilitate difficult conversations and hopefully to provide another perspective to recognize that at the end of the day, we are still Ohana. We're still an extended family of relations that, you know, whether or not you believe in Hawaiian sovereignty, for example, we need to figure out ways to get back to maintaining community cohesion of being able to have the difficult conversations and still be able to come to the dinner table with each other. Because we live in a world that, especially in a country where divisive politics has run amok, where social media is where people go for, you know, Hawaiian content and Hawaiian knowledge without actually knowing whether or not that is vetted information. And so these are issues that we are increasingly facing. And so we have to deal with those things head on. And the only way we can is to have these honest conversations with each other that encompass nationhood, sovereignty, popular culture, diasporic movements of, of Native Hawaiians on the continent, which we know now there's the CNAJ conference where many folks have attended. So all of these conversations are worthy of space. And I'm going to do my best in my own capacity, because again, just one person, <laughs> hopefully there'll be more in the future to be able to hopefully provide more awareness to the wider public, but hopefully to facilitate that work that we, we desperately are working towards within our community. Thank you so much for your time, Helena. Really appreciate talking to you. Thank you so much for the phone call. Aloha. 
That was the Smithsonian Institute's Helena Capuna Reynolds talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Capuna Reynolds' will work will focus on Hawaiian history and culture within the National Museum of the American Indian. He is the Institute's first ever curator dedicated to a specific cultural group. <laughs> Before we go, we're going to touch on the answer for today's Backyard Quiz. We asked if you knew the defensive mechanism used by cane toads to thwart predators. First introduced on Oahu in 1932, these toads continue to multiply at astronomical rates. They possess a chameleon-like ability that allows them to blend into their surroundings to trick predators. But when that fails, the toads have another defense. They secrete a deadly toxic substance from their neck glands which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. This toxin can kill an average size cat or dog rather easily, and it's not just bad for pets, but can also be bad for anyone who touches them. Some have tried smoking or licking this toxin for a hallucinogenic effect, but you are more, more likely to experience a serious case of warts, tongue fungus, vomiting, and in extreme cases, death. What is certain is that there is no Prince Charming to be found through kissing or touching toads. There are better ways to seek true love. And that is today's quiz. Congrats to Arnold from Honam Now. You got it right today. And if you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we wind up Seed Bank Week by heading to the Big Island. It's home to a bank that sells seeds for farmers and gardeners. Got questions about seeds? We'll try and get some answers for you. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you find your podcast. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.